visit here so wonderfully smoothly. Now, the topic I'm going to talk about today in, in some way brings together two of my interest areas, which is the role of international disaster law and international humanitarian law. It's not a topic I necessarily picked. I was asked to prepare a paper for a conference I attended last week in Rome, and this is one of the ones on the list. And to me, it, um, it, it brought together those two strands. I thought it would be quite an interesting paper. Having said that, though, I, was, I had in my head a much more technical, kind of going through mapping the two areas, one against another um, type of paper. But I realised I didn't get past the, the, the first question, which is, well, what, are the, what is the relationship between these two areas of law? So in saying that, the, the topic I was given was the role of human, international human, humanitarian law, IHL, in the provision of humanitarian assistance in disasters. But actually, the more closely I looked at it, it really became the question the other way round. Is there a role for international disaster law in, humanitarian, in, in, in areas where a disaster occurs, where an armed conflict is ongoing? So in some ways, the question uh, had to be flipped. And the reason why it was flipped is there has been this assertion that the Lex Specialis uh, rule of treaty interpretation would apply, so that IHL, being the Lex Specialis in armed conflict, would effectively preclude IDL from ever applying. So that was the kind of position some of the key documents and the literature had taken. So what I'm going to do in this paper is to challenge that view and say actually a, a more nuanced view of the interaction between the two areas law is required. Um, and is actually contemplated by the most recent iteration we have from the International Law Commission, which are preparing some draft articles on the protection of persons in disasters. So firstly, what I'm going to do is just very briefly outline why it's a, a practical problem and the potential for the overlap between the two areas. I'm going to talk briefly about the scope of IHL, uh, both in terms of its application and the substantive provisions that are relevant. Thirdly, I'm going to talk about what the ILC where, where the ILC is currently at on this issue. Fourthly, I'm going to then look at the, how I suggest the relationship would work in practice. And then finally, I'll offer a few conclusions as to the way forward on this. So, um, obviously, there are, I think I, I took the most recent figure of there being February 2016, 42 active armed conflicts around the world. Most of those are non-international in nature. Several of them uh, have been ongoing for a number of decades, but several are also in countries that are very much prone to disasters. So examples from my region, the Asia-Pacific, include China, the Philippines, Nepal, India, Pakistan, Burma, Myanmar, and Indonesia. So I started thinking about the scenarios in which these two areas of law would overlap, and the most likely scenario is where you have an existing armed conflict and then a disaster occurs within that territory. Now, the Philippines is an example of a state that's prone to conflict that is also prone to disasters. That's a classic example of where you do have an overlap. Now, within that scenario, there are two possibilities. The first possibility is the disaster happens in the region that's affected by the conflict. The second one is that it happens in a region that's largely separate to and unaffected by the conflict, and that becomes relevant later on. A different scenario for the interaction between the two areas of law is where you have a disaster or a series of disasters leads to an intensifying of existing conflict, uh, existing tensions, and that then leads to an armed conflict. So this is what we'd call more likely to come from what we call slow onset disasters. So famines, continuous flooding in an area, for example, as opposed to those sudden onset disasters like a hurricane, an earthquake, a volcano erupting. Even where you have 
slow onset disasters, management of those disasters can in itself trigger um, increasing tensions and leading to um, armed conflict. Another key point I wanted to make is, is that there are differences between IHL and IDL in terms of bodies of law. And I presented this to a, a group of international disaster law lawyers last week, and they weren't too happy when I was saying this, but I think it's true. I don't think they're an equivalent body of law, or two equivalent bodies of law. So if you look at IHL, it's been established for around 150 years. We know it applies in situations of armed conflict and occupation. It, this body of law is one of the most well-known, widely accepted um, areas. It's, many of its principles are widely recognised as being reflected in customary international law, although its implementation and enforcement are far from perfect. So obviously among those treaty-based and customary international law principles are the rules on um, humanitarian assistance. We'll talk about those a little bit later. Now in contrast, what we now know as international disaster law previously also known as international disaster response law, is really about the legal framework that applies in relation to disasters. So it's been, the reason we've shifted from international disaster response law is that we're now also focusing much more on the risk reduction and the rehabilitation phases as well, whereas traditionally it was that idea of what framework governs the provision of international assistance. So it's a relatively new field of law. We're only really talking in the last 10 10 years since this was mooted as a, as a new subfield of international law. We don't have a consistent definition of disaster. Uh, we don't know if it includes technological, natural, what level of threshold is required. So some of the key issues in the field are still very much open for discussion. There's also no overarching multilateral instrument. We don't have the equivalent of the Geneva Conventions. We have a number of what we call sectoral conventions. So, for example, one of the most widely known is the Tampere Convention that regulates telecommunications in disasters. There are a number of regional instruments, a lot of bilateral instruments, and then a, a host of soft law instruments that aren't intended to have legally binding effect, but and this is what, something I've started to think about now, but may in effect have legally binding status because they're then implemented into national law. So for me, it's not really two bodies of law that have equal standing and clarity. It's one very well accepted body of law, an emerging body of law, and then there's this uncertain relationship as to the extent national law is also feeding into um, what we would call international disaster law. And that's something I've still been struggling with as, as I've gone through the paper. So, but as you can see, there is provision that those two areas of law will, will, will overlap where there's a disaster in a, in a conflict zone. So I'm not going to go through the substantive provisions in any detail of IHL. I'm hoping people are vaguely familiar with IHL and its content. But we need to remember that there are two types of rules from IHL that are applicable. The first one's obviously those kind of contextual threshold uh, requirements. So obviously I, IHL is not a, a regime of general application. It will only apply where there's an armed conflict, be it internal, international, or an occupation. Uh, and there's also the body of laws that talk about um, how humanitarian assistance and when humanitarian assistance can be provided. So I won't go through, obviously we have to satisfy the level of there being an armed conflict, the intensity, the level of violence requirements, uh, control may be relevant depending on which treaty instrument you're using. It also has a limited temporal, geographic and personal scope, which I'll come back to later. Uh, but basically what it means is that for 
a responder to a disaster on the ground, they'll have to be making factual determinations as to what that legal framework is. Is it an armed conflict? Is it international, non-international? Is it an occupation? To even work out which provisions of IHL would apply. Now, similarly, the substantive provisions relative to humanitarian relief also vary depending on whether it's an occupation, a non-international armed conflict, or an international armed conflict. So there's no um, kind of unanimous comprehensive regime that governs humanitarian assistance. <coughs> As I've said, I won't go through those principles. The, the main ones that um, are relevant are firstly, uh, in, in various ways, it creates a right of humanitarian initiative for the International Committee of the Red Cross and other impartial humanitarian organisations to provide relief and also creates obligations on states' parties and parties in control of territory and occupying powers to facilitate and to allow aid into the um, controlled territories. But there's nothing comprehensive that regulates all three, so you need to look into the detail for each of those. Um, having, in the paper, obviously go through those in more detail, but for matters of time today, I, I won't. The main difference, um, or the main conclusions I draw just from looking at IHL provisions that would be relevant, is first that the point I've already made, which is the idea that determining whether IHL applies to a particular situation will require those factual determinations as to its geographical scope, whether the law applies, who's protected by the Geneva Conventions at that point, and whether also a particular actor is in control of territory. And we've seen an armed conflict control can fluctuate quite frequently. Secondly, um, IHL doesn't define what constitutes humanitarian assistance. So it talks about relief operations. Um, it gives a fairly limited definition of what relief might be. Um, for example, it suggests that consignments of food, stuff, medical supplies and clothing. That's expanded in AP1 to talk about clothing, bedding, means of survival, sorry, means of shelter and other supplies. But it's key that it's usually linked to extremity. So it's things that are required for the survival of the population or when it's the basic, it's basically the basic minimum that an affected population needs. It also doesn't, um, as the IDL in contrast does, has probably a more bro broader definition. It just talks about external assistance, which can be much broader in terms of what, what is coming in. It's one kind of key difference. IHL does indicate important principles that are relevant to the provision of assistance. Mainly they suggest when assistance will be considered humanitarian in, in nature. So it should be consistent with the principles of humanity. So it's basically directed to prevent unnecessary suffering, provided without distinction. It should be consistent with impartiality. And potentially, although there's some discussion in the literature about that, neutrality and, and what neutrality might mean in that context. It also suggests that humanitarian assistance is really urgent. It's those immediate responses, key needs, key needs, and must be linked to indispensable needs of the population. And that distinguishes it from development assistance, which has a kind of longer-term goal. It would make it, for example, distinguish it from assistance you might give post-disaster for rehabilitation, for example. So that, that temporal aspect, is, um, the urgency aspect is different. Third, other than the case of an occupying power, the IHL obligations on the territorial state are quite, um, or the non-state actor who's in control of territory, they don't really address that primary obligation of the state to aid its own people. It really focuses on the, the bringing in of relief by external actors. Now there is a presumption in IHL that states are primarily responsible for organising relief and that relief societies play that auxiliary role in providing relief. 
But IHL doesn't specify that primary obligation in its text. And the difference with IDL is that IDL makes that very clear. It's the primary responsibility of that state to provide assistance to its own people. So that means when we're talking about that in IHL, we're really having to source that obligation elsewhere. And most people normally turn to humanitarian human rights law to source you know, the argued right to humanitarian assistance. So that, that obligation isn't clearly spelt out by IHL. IHL also doesn't um, really spell out what the role of third or neutral states is in relation to provision of assistance. Um, obviously, they, they preserve that role of protecting powers, which we know isn't really used very often in contemporary conflicts. So it really is just creating a role for the International Committee of the Red Cross and kind of auxiliary um, actors. Another important thing for disasters is it doesn't spell out the role of militaries in providing assistance. Now, disaster law would also say that the really provision of assistance, humanitarian assistance, by the military in the event of a disaster should be the last resort. It should be through more independent, neutral humanitarian actors. But the reality, particularly in the Asian region, is that that is how governments respond with foreign assistance. So if we look at most of the responses to the Nepal earthquake, for example, a large majority of those came through the military of India, um, other militaries in the region, and that in itself created a number of tensions. So IHL doesn't address what we're seeing as an emerging trend in IDL at all, which is the idea of the role of the military. And obviously that is important for IHL, because if you have third state militaries coming into the territory where there's already an armed conflict, it does raise questions as to what framework might regulate uh, their activities. A fourth factor is that there's not one, as I mentioned, there's not one comprehensive regime. Um, the legal framework is slightly more kind of meatier in relation to occupation. But even those provisions we do have don't really spell out a lot of the technical things we need in terms of providing assistance. They're quite broad statements about rights to allow access rights not to interfere with um, the delivery of assistance. So some of the provisions we need, um, you know, things like visas, tax, duties, the types of materials allowed, there's just no detail to that. And what IDL has been concerned with, mainly through software instruments, is giving a lot more meat to those types of obligations. And they're just not dealt with by the IHL provisions. Also, the IHL provisions are subject to restrictions such as military necessity and security concerns. You know, for example, the provisions on withholding relief supplies for imperative reasons of security. Um, those limits, of course, reflect the reality in, in IHL that you are balancing between humanitarian needs and military needs. But they're also subject to manipulation or at least different interpretations by the actors involved. An IDL has, doesn't, isn't really limited by those security concerns and IDL would argue that you should really be worried about extending those types of um, concerns to an area where there really isn't a military threat or there's no kind of security concerns. Finally, uh, the significance of state consent to humanitarian assistance in IHL is clear. Obviously, the literature and developing practice has focused on the extent to which you can, a state can arbitrarily withhold consent, but the the link of state consent is still clear. Um, and that underlies the view that states should be the primary responders. Um, and a bit, it also reinforces the idea that humanitarian assistance in an armed conflict is very much exceptional and it's those kind of emergency situations. So there's also the, the question that on its face, IHL would perhaps exclude the provision 
of assistance where it doesn't necessarily threaten the existence of the population or kind of hit those high military, ex uh, those high extremes. Now, an additional point I wanted to flag, and I was, I'm specifically wasn't asked to address the role of human rights law in this as well, but obviously we all know that the interaction between IHL and human rights law is now clearly established, um, despite having this discussion 20 or 30 years ago in relation to the role of um, the two areas of law. It now clearly applies, even though how that applies in practice is still a matter of debate um, and discussion. Now, that has two key points for this discussion, which is firstly that IHL doesn't automatically displace other regimes just because these regimes happen to be in an area where there's an armed conflict. And I think that's relevant to IDL as well. The second one is we also need to remember that it's not just IHL or IDL. It means that human rights law is also there in the mix of what the applicable legal framework is whenever there's a disaster that may or may not happen in a conflict area. But because I was asked, other papers at the, at the conference dealt with that relationship, so I haven't really kind of fleshed that out, but I do think it is relevant. Okay, so that moves me on to looking at what the International Law Commission has, where we're at with this at the moment. Um, so as I mentioned, the ILC has been drafting a set of um, draft articles for the protection of persons in disasters. They completed it at first reading uh, last year. It's now been sent out to states with requests for comments, which I think the deadline has just passed. It will be discussed again for second reading at the next, um, the next meeting. <coughs> so the first point is to say that it's, IHL is clearly and expressly recognised as a source for many of the things we find in disaster law. Um, so some of the, the leading um, instruments we do have expressly recognise that. Um, examples of common principles include the right of humanitarian initiative for humanitarian organisations, obligations for states to facilitate assistance, principles governing the provision of assistance and the circumstances where you can withhold consent. So I'm not disputing that IHL hasn't been incredibly influential in terms of IDL's development. But the main chapter I've been looking at is the extent to which IHL leaves any space for IDL um, in these areas. Now, that's been approached in two ways. And this is where I said I never got past to the paper I thought I wanted to write, because I thought this would have been settled and I would just be able to launch straight into how it works in practice. But that's just not settled, and there are quite clear uh, divisions. The ICRC, for example, takes a very strong position that as soon as there's an armed conflict, IDL would have no role. That may or not reflect, um, shall we say, that the Federation has the lead in disasters and the Red Cross ICRC has the lead in armed conflict, so that may well be reflecting the structural history and structural capacities um, and turf. So the first way these questions, this question has been approached is as a definitional one. So when we're defining disaster, do we include an armed conflict? And different instruments have, have adopted, as I said, we don't have a standard definition of disaster, so different instruments have adopted different views towards this. The two most recent ones, <coughs> which are the soft law IDRL guidelines developed by the Federation, and the Oslo guidelines, which talk about military assistance, um, civil, civil military assistance, both exclude armed conflict from the scope of a disaster. So an armed conflict itself does not count as a disaster. Now, initially, the ILC Special Rapporteur took the same, report, same approach, and his first draft definition specifically excluded armed conflict, which in some ways takes away the issue. That went went through the sixth committee and the drafting committee, and it was decided that was 
just too rigid a view and actually it wasn't a question of definition it was a question of the relationship between two areas of law and it wasn't appropriate for that to be dealt with as a definitional one so the special rapporteur dropped that from the definition and the definition now makes no comment about an armed conflict uh, it just talks about the threshold of basically what leads to an armed con to a disaster and the threshold at which something becomes a disaster and instead they introduced what was then draft article 4 and is now draft article 21 which is basically a, what I call a relationship clause, just stipulating what the relationship should be. So it follows on from a relationship clause about IDL and other areas of international law, in particular human rights law, but this one is specific to hum in IHL. Uh, it, it says, the present draft articles do not apply to situations to which the rules of international humanitarian law are applicable. That's all we have. Commentary expands on that a little bit more, but that's, that's the rule. Now, Looking through the drafting history of that, it, it's clear that the ILC intended this is to clarify the relationship between the, between the draft articles and IHL, giving predominance to the latter set of rules where they are applicable. So for me, it was clear from the drafting history that this provision isn't, as has been asserted, a, a provision that says there's no role, role at all for IDL. It really is that you need to look at it on a case-by-case -case basis. It recognises that there should be some predominance given to IHL, but it doesn't exclude IHL, uh, IDL completely. So the commentary, for example, says that um, the draft articles would continue to, to apply to the extent that a disaster which occurred in the same area as an armed conflict would not be covered by rules of IHL. So it's kind of reinforcing that um, lex specialis rule, but not to the point where the other area doesn't apply at all. So that means we need to think about how a, a kind of a more nuanced approach to that question. So in thinking about it, there were three possible scenarios for the relationship. The first one, as you could say, IHL is the regulating law and there's no rule for IDL. I think that's, given the, the paucity and the limits to IHL, I don't think that's a realistic standpoint um, for the relationship between the two of them. The second one is that you might look at the circumstances in which IHL doesn't apply or perhaps shouldn't apply. And this is where the IHL lawyer and me started to come into conflict with the IDL lawyer and me. Um, and this is where I was pushed by the IDL lawyers last week because I thought I didn't go far enough on this point. And the third one is where IHL applies but is supplemented or complemented with reference to um, IDL. So looking at that second scenario, the, uh, there are a number of possibilities where I thought you might say IHL doesn't apply or perhaps shouldn't apply. And we're really talking about not applying to the delivery of assistance after a disaster. It's quite a narrow um, point, I'm not saying it shouldn't apply at all. So the first one and the most obvious one, and again, I probably wouldn't have, a, as a, an IHL lawyer, wouldn't have a problem with this one, is where it, it doesn't meet those threshold tests. Uh, so it's not an armed conflict and then IHL is not engaged at all. That's the most obvious um, answer. But as I said, that's not an easy determination to make for a you know, humanitarian organisation coming in trying to work out which legal framework they're, they're based on. Um, so that's, it may appear to be the most straightforward from a legal point, but implementing that in practice may not be so straightforward. <coughs> a second one is, and that they, that the ILC do hint at this, is looking at the ge geographical location of the disaster relative to where the armed conflict area is. So in principle, IHL applies to all the territory of the contracting states, of the, sorry, the conflicting states, when there's an international armed conflict, to all territories controlled by parties to the um, 
conflict, you know, non-international armed conflict and to the territory that's occupied in occupation. And there's no limit that says it only applies to the areas where there's active hostilities. So it applies the entire territory. So the question then is, well, what happens where a disaster occurs in an area that is geographically remote from those hostilities? Technically speaking, IHL applies the entire territory, would be the governing law, but should it really apply in that situation? Now, one academic suggests the example of Hurricane Katrina in 2005, at a time when the um, US was engaged in a conflict of a non-international, not, not of an international character, um, however we want to define that conflict, but they were involved in the conflict. Obviously, the disaster occurred on US territory, technically speaking, IHL applied to that territory, but the idea that IHL would have regulated the provision of assistance to that disaster um, wasn't raised and probably wasn't even contemplated. But that is an example of how you could take that interaction to an extreme. So that's one example, whether um, it's geographically isolated from the, the armed conflict. That could also be linked to the personal limitations of IHL. So if you look at people who are victims of armed conflict, if they're not really victims also of a disaster, or the victims of the disaster are not really victims of the conflict, then perhaps that's another way where you might say IHL doesn't apply. Now, another suggestion, I think it's related, is, this, is a suggestion that for IDL or for IHL really to displace the role of IDL in relation to an, a disaster, Sorry, is the right round? Yeah, so for IHL to be the dominant law, effectively, there would need to be a nexus between the armed conflict and the disaster. And that could be geographical, it could be the victims, it could be some other nexus. Now, this is the suggestion that apparently at recent meetings had the ICRC, shall we say, strongly um, opposed to any idea of this, this potential limitation of IHL applying. Um, now, there's certainly not a requirement for a nexus in any of these humanitarian relief provisions, so we would have to be kind of reading one in, and this is where I'm a little bit uncomfortable about creating something that would effectively potentially limit when IHL would be there. It's a body of law we strive hard to have apply and to then start coming up with situations where it shouldn't apply. It doesn't sit too easily with me. Uh, but the nexus wouldn't necessarily need to say that the suffering has to be caused by the armed conflict. Um, it wouldn't have to go that far. Of course, we do require a nexus, a requirement for a connection in other contexts in IHL, the obvious one being war crimes, and there that is um, interpreted quite flexibly and quite loosely. So I think if we were going to look for a similar type of nexus requirement between a disaster and an armed conflict, it would have to be similarly fairly loosely interpreted. So it could be even if the armed conflict was, for example, making it harder to provide the assistance, then perhaps IH, that, that, that should be enough perhaps to link it to IHL. Another possibility is that the parties to a conflict effectively decide not to apply IHL. They just choose another body of law, bilateral arrangements, whatever they want in relation to that disaster-related assistance, even though technically IHL would apply. And this is not... Again, a certain level of discomfort with this. Um, but IHL does provide a minimum set of standards and obligations the parties to the conflict must uh, apply. So surely it must be open to the parties to a conflict by agreement or by practice to adopt a different set of arrangements. But I would say they would have to be at least of the same level 
of assistance as we provide by IHL. So they could obviously take on more beneficial arrangements. And I, I wouldn't have a problem with that. Now, if we look in terms of practice, um, there have been some limited studies as to what states have actually done on the ground when these have happened. And it really suggests that IHL plays a very limited role in these types of situations um, where we'd have a mixed disaster armed conflict. It's hard to kind of draw big conclusions from those because the ones that have, where it's really had, you know, there have been examples where the, it's been, the disaster's been kind of geographically far away or not really connected. So we haven't had key case studies perhaps. And the ones that we have tend to be after, tend to have predated when we've started developing IDL. So it's quite hard to see what framework they were applying because, um, you know, for example, the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, which affected Aceh, um, Sri Lanka, uh, and other armed conflict sites, none of the instruments we're talking about had really been designed at that point. So we haven't really got a huge body of practice. But what there is suggests that states do tend to look for other arrangements um, and may, in fact, negotiate a ceasefire just for the particular um, arrangements. Um, now, the, the third scenario I talked about is where IHL applies to a situation, but the relevant IHL rules um, aren't comprehensive or don't address that point at all or don't provide a significant amount of detail. And that's where I suggest that's where the real role of IDL is, is to um, supplement or complement IHL provisions. Now, I can see why you would want to rely on IHL as well as IDL, because obviously I IHL brings with it a much more clearly legal, they're much more hard norms than IDL brings, so they might actually be helpful to an organisation to initially get them into the country. Um, it's also the case often in these situations as well that they're already the framework, so if, if you look at the ICRC, is often the first responder because they're there because of the armed conflict, so you can see why they want to continue those rules. Um, but, and so that's why I think we need to be quite careful about saying, well, they don't apply at all and they should be displaced as soon as there's a disaster. However, you can certainly draw an IDL to supplement those provisions on those more technical arrangements um, as an alternative or, or on top of. Now, that's where I thought the paper was going to be, basically, <laughs> which ones would be relevant, but I didn't get that far because I had to resolve this kind of first issue um, beforehand. There's also a kind of another suggested way, um, and so here in this kind of final category, you're really starting to interact with exactly the same discussion that's going on around the relationship between IHL and human rights law. And so there's the idea that, well, really, let's not treat either as being the lex specialis. Let's just look for the, the best, uh, most specific, most protective rule in a given situation. And I think that is probably where hopefully we'll get to. And that's where I was pushed last week in terms of, well, shouldn't that be what you're saying? It's almost flip it on its head and say, well, IDL should be the lex specialis, so we should be looking for a more specific rule. But why I'm reluctant to deal with to go that far is because I just don't think, it comes back to that point I made initially, that I don't think that they are as yet equivalent bodies of law. And I think the, the legal status and the hard nature of IHL brings with it something that um, IDL potentially can't. That might change as more and more states implement these soft law instruments, but then we're talking about different levels. It's not a conflict between two international, it's an international as implemented in, in national. Okay, so... Um, a few points in conclusion then. Um, so as I said, there are clear advantages to retaining IHL as the applicable legal framework to regulate humanitarian assistance after a disaster. So as I said, it contains binding, well-accepted obligations on states and other parties to a conflict to accept and facilitate that aid. 
as well as obligations on third states, including those transit states, which the age has to come. Now, in contrast, most of those IDL instruments are non-binding, limited in scope, and states certainly did not yet accept their provisions as reflecting customary international law. So even though you might find the same types of provisions we saw in IHL, and they've effectively been carried over into IDL, they certainly just don't have the same sense of standing and acceptance. Um, we also say that most government lawyers are not as familiar with IDL as they would be with IHL, for example. So part of it might be getting government lawyers to become more familiar and more comfortable with using a different body of law that is also relevant. Despite those advantages, though, and its hard law status, IHL is not necessarily applicable to relief. Um, and there are a number of challenges with using IHL. So just list them again. It's limited application, the disparate and uncomprehensive nature of its provisions that depend on the nature of the conflict, um, control of territory and other things that would um, require a factual determination. And also the potential susceptibility of IHL to political and military tensions, for example. Um, we talk about those restrictions of military necessity. So given those limits, it shouldn't be assumed that IDL is relevant, is not relevant, just because a disaster happens to occur or an armed conflict is ongoing. So we shouldn't assume that IHL is always the predominant or the exclusive body of law in these situations. In fact, you might say IDL is more suitable in some situations because it's less politicised. Um, it's a, perhaps a, a less um, security-driven framework providing humanitarian assistance. Whilst provisions aren't binding, though, and that's often the main critique of IH, uh, IDL, you have to look at you know, IHL itself may be binding, but its enforcement mechanisms are similarly weak. So there may be even more potential, for example, under domestic law to enforce obligations um, to allow disaster assistance. And uh, there have been a few examples around the world of uh, individuals taking governments for failing or basically querying how aid was distributed and, and for blocking assistance. So maybe it provides a different framework for trying to get enforcement. Um, another argument is that IDL is, is really focusing, um, and a lot of people concentrate on IDL about the issues of when you can hold, withhold consent to the provision of assistance, and the classic examples, Myanmar, Burma, um, Cyclone Nargis. But that's really a rare um, situation. Usually what you have is a government that is willing, uh, but has been overwhelmed by the disaster. Um, so I, I, IDL is really a lot more focused on recognising the, the, you know, the sovereign prerogative of a state to be the primary responder, to control what comes into its country, to manage the influx of international assistance. And in some ways, the main problem is international organisations and other states effectively just turning up, overrunning the sovereignty of that state um, by sending unnecessary, inappropriate aid. So uh, and I think many, many governments have done that. Um, and it's certainly what some of the states that have been trying to manage these large-scale disasters uh, are saying. You know, you're trying to make us resilient, you're trying to build capacity, you're making us reform our laws so we can respond more quickly and readily. And then when it happens, that's out the window and you just send everything without even asking whether we want the aid. So that's one of the main concerns with IDL at the moment is building um, capacity, recognising the control of the sovereign state, and really trying to make it, wherever possible, a national response, um, minimising that need for international assistance. And that's what I, I highlighted before. I think there's a tension between that drive of IDL and the humanitarian assistance provisions in IHL, which really do kind of prioritise external assistance and really don't spell out at all what the role of, that, of the, the main state is. 
However, that I don't want to suggest that IHL has no role to play, and this is where I um, kind of keep, in some ways, coming back from the position I'm taking. Um, as, as I said, as an IHL lawyer, I find it very uncomfortable to say that IHL shouldn't apply when there's an armed conflict. And I think it does contain key provisions, such as those detailing the provision of assistance, where you do have military and security concerns. And IDL doesn't really deal with those at all. So I think where you do have an armed conflict and the disaster relief is going to be influenced or impacted by IHL, then I think it should, it should definitely remain the first kind of port of call in terms of applicable law. <coughs> now, IHL recognises the risk of interference from other groups, the possibility of aid being diverted to um, combatants. It deals with those things in a way that IHL, uh, the IDL just simply doesn't. Also regulates the idea of aid being provided in areas that are controlled by non-state actors, for example. So I do think it has a role to play. The question is whether it, it's the exclusive source of law, and I don't think it is. I also don't know if we want to go so far as saying it's the lex specialis and it should always apply. Um, perhaps what we're saying is where in those particular contexts where, where the delivery of disaster-related assistance will be affected by the armed conflict, then it should be the, the rules that apply. But it should be supplemented by IDL um, to the extent its provisions aren't complete. And then I think we need to think about the situations where there isn't any nexus between the armed conflict and the disaster-related assistance, then perhaps we might be happy... Not, I don't want to say it's disapplied, because I don't like the idea of disapplying IHL, but that perhaps we would turn more to IDL then as the lex specialis. And I think that's where the, um, the ILC has effectively left us, that we've been, le we've been directed to look at it in a case-by-case -case basis, uh, to look at where IHL doesn't apply, then we can apply IDL. But they've done little to address the practicalities of how that is going to play out. Um, so basically, they've tried to have text that's simple and elegant, and in reality, all they've done is give fairly superficial consideration to this. Um, they certainly haven't um, collected appropriate state practice. They haven't tried to give any certainty or any depth of consideration to this issue. And so, so far for me, this has been a lost opportunity. 